Well, the assigned scripture reading for, uh, from our lectionary today is from Romans 4, uh, and that story tells the story uh, of Abraham's faith. And Paul wants us to know that uh, it wasn't the law, it wasn't the law that made Abraham righteous, but it was his trust, his faith in God's grace. And uh, the rest of his letter to the Romans is basically an extended reflection on the difference between law on the one hand and grace or gospel on the other. And uh, nowhere is Paul's wrestling with this tension between these two ideas uh, more explicit than in Romans 7. So if you'll allow me this morning to just preach a sermon from Romans 7 and not Romans 4, uh, I think it'll fit the theme and uh, of Lent a little bit more appropriately. So listen now for the word of the Lord from Romans 7, 15 through 25. This is Paul speaking. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that the good does not dwell within me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do the good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. When I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's cheery. It's really cheery, right? (laughs) It's a great Lenten read. He ends by saying, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. A hearty thanks. Let's, let's pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are times when reading and studying scripture that we really notice the gap between the, the ancient world of the Bible and the modern world that, that we live in, we, we experience, we live, move, and, and find our being, uh, there are times that we need to really dig deep into kind of the cultural and historical realities of that world and uh, tr- really try to grasp what the writer is trying to say to us. Um, this is not one of those times, right? You do not need a seminary degree to understand what Paul's talking about here. You don't need to know much about the context or his audience. All you need is a mirror and a healthy dose of honesty. Uh, Someone tell me why I do the things I don't want to do and why I can't seem to do the things I actually want to do. Why do I seem to sabotage my relationships or career or health? If we could figure out the answer to that question, don't you think life would be just a little bit easier? Well, in his book, Low Anthropology, which some of us at least are reading uh, during Lent, uh, and which is kind of serving as an inspiration for our worship together throughout the season. Uh, Dave Zoll describes this inner conflict uh, that Paul has just written about. He describes it as doubleness. It's one of the features of what he calls low anthropology. Uh, If you haven't read the book yet, Dave says that we all go through life with with an anthropology, by which he means we all go through life with a kind of um, 
idea about what human beings are really like. A high anthropology paints a pretty idealistic picture of our lives. And Dave thinks that this idealistic picture of, of your life, if that's what you have for your life, it will lead to perfectionism and then eventually burnout, exhaustion, and maybe even resentment of yourself and certainly resentment of all the other people around you who just can't seem to meet your standards for them. Low anthropology, on the other hand, uh, helps paint a rather accurate picture of our life. And Dave thinks that this accurate picture leads to humility. It leads to connection with each other and then grace, not only for ourselves, but for other people, these other people who uh, just don't always live up to the standards that we have for them. So back to doubleness. Dave says that doubleness refers to the competing forces or the competing voices that drive our behavior. Uh, doubleness captures the reality that, that oftentimes our decision-making is less like a flow chart and more like a really bad uh, committee meeting, right, going on inside of us. And if you, you know, you're good Presbyterians, if you've ever been in, in a committee meeting, you know it's not always a very neat process. Or think about uh, Maurice Sendak's famous book, uh, Where the Wild Things Are, right, which is a story about young Max's attempt to tame the wild things inside of him. And in the book, he's actually successful at taming these wild things. If you, if you uh, watch the movie depiction of that book, came out, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I think it's actually more um, accurate to reality. In the movie, Max can't actually tame the wild things. And the truth is, the point is, is that we all have these wild things inside of us. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates Paul's words like this. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. Can you relate? Well, when our children were younger, we were very careful about screen time. If you're a, a parent of young children, you know, right, that this is the agreed upon, like the universal agreed upon thing that is bad for children. Uh, so everybody is nervous about this, freaked out about it, and so we were really careful about it with our kids. Uh, we did everything we could to limit their screen time. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Uh, and after about, I don't know, like eight hours at home alone with my children, I was like, boys, this is an iPad. <laughs> you're going to love it. Um, and before you judge me, uh, it was their only connection to their school and to anyone else other than my wife and me. And suddenly, after years of strict boundaries, they had a lot of screen time. Uh, you fast forward about a year or 18 months, and um, they were going back to school. And my oldest, who was six at the time, was I guess he would have been in kindergarten. And, uh, but because not everybody had come back to school at the same time, the teacher was still teaching via Zoom. So you had some kids at home watching and then some kids in school. And the kids in school were like ensconced in plexiglass, right? It was like, come to school and get in the penalty box, right? And that's where you're going to learn. Uh, so he was on his iPad all day long and sometimes bored because uh, there would be breaks and that kind of thing. He didn't have his Legos to play with. And we were very clear with him. He knew because we were very clear with him that he was only allowed to use his iPad for school while he was at school. Uh, but we discovered, after a while, that he was using his iPad at school to play Minecraft. 
Now, uh, if you don't know what Minecraft is, I don't actually know what it is either, so I don't know how to tell you what it is. But as best I can tell is like it's a video game. Uh, and they build worlds. That's basically all, but it's never ending. It like never ends, there's no, anyways. Another sermon on Minecraft some other day. Uh, but disappointed and a little angry when he got home from school, I asked him, you know, why did you, why did you do this? You know better, right? You ever had a conversation like that with your children? You know better. And he looked at me and uh, somewhat kind of confused. I mean, I could tell he was examining himself. And he says, I couldn't stop myself. And as soon as he said that, I noticed myself actually soften, right? I immediately knew exactly what he was talking about. And all I could say in response was, yeah, I know that, I know that feeling, right? He didn't, he didn't defend himself. He didn't give me reasons. He wasn't saying, you know, like, everybody else is playing Minecraft. He just simply admitted, I couldn't stop myself, right? The algorithm is too great, Dad. Well, that feeling is doubleness. The moment that your willpower, it just fails you. And I know that some of you at least are thinking, it's clear John isn't doing a very good job as a parent. Um, if he just ran a tighter ship, you know, his sons would possess a stronger will. And you may be right. Uh, but before you, you know, go too fast to that judgment, uh, be honest with yourself just for a minute. Think about a time that you did something that you knew you shouldn't have and later regret it. Or that time that you said something that you really wished you hadn't, or you bought the thing you really didn't need, or the time that you lied or you cheated. Or take the, the moral dimension out of it completely and just think about those mornings, right, when you know you should go to the gym, but you know it's negative 14 degrees outside and you just hit the snooze button instead. Or when it's pretty late, you know you have an early meeting and you're very tired, but there's just one more episode of Ted Lasso to watch. And when you think about why you behave these ways, the best you can come up with is that you just couldn't help yourself, that you lack the willpower to stop yourself. Well, doubleness is a term that helps us make sense of our lives as we actually experience them. Our motivations are mixed, often conflicted. And Paul tells us that the purpose of the law is to point out this fundamental conflict. That's how we know that we have this conflict is because of the law. But the law can't resolve it. It can't. We need something more. Now, some people have tried to make the argument that Paul is describing his life before he discovered Christ, as if to say that Christians don't struggle with this anymore. But um, if you've been a Christian like longer than four minutes, you know that that's not true. You know it's not true. What makes more sense to our actual lives is that even of the, those of us who believe in Christ, we still struggle just like Paul did. Right? The reformer Martin Luther said that we are all simultaneously saints and sinners. And we remain so for the rest of our lives. Now, I do know the optimists in the room, um, you really don't like this concept of low anthropology. And I know because you sent me emails. Thank you very much for those emails. Um, <laughs> It frustrates you. It frustrates you to think uh, because you think it lets, uh, maybe lets yourself or more importantly, I think, other people off the hook for bad behavior or for low performance. Uh, there's a, a New Yorker cartoon that I love. It depicts a, a surgeon standing over a patient. And the caption reads, uh, the surgeon is speaking to his patient. It says, uh, the bad news is the operation was unsuccessful. 
The good news is that I'm working on not defining myself by my failures. That's not what we mean by low anthropology, okay? It's not just a low expectation for what we can accomplish or the good behavior we actually can do. Dave is really clear throughout his book, and I want to make sure that I'm very clear this morning, that low anthropology isn't cynicism, it isn't nihilism, uh, doubleness isn't meant to justify or excuse bad behavior. It's just explaining it. It's helping you understand yourself, helping you understand other people. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Paul is describing life as we actually experience it. And Martin Luther was right. We are all, each of us, simultaneously saints and sinners. And I think that the greater risk is not that we overly identify with the sinner, but actually that we deny it altogether, that we pretend to be better than we are. And the result of that is always hiding or shame or exhaustion. And thankfully, what Paul gives to us by inviting us into his own inner conflict uh, is the freedom. We are free to examine ourselves without fear. In the next verses, Paul, Paul writes, in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You are free to examine your failures without fear of being condemned. To be in Christ doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Trust me. It means that there is no mistake that Christ hasn't forgiven. And that is a relief. That is a relief. So we are free to confess that our actions don't always align with our ideals. We're free to admit that we sometimes sabotage our best intentions. And when we do, we just, I think, we just might discover compassion for ourselves, but I think more importantly for other people around us. It's doubleness. It's understanding doubleness that helps us make uh, what Will Gadara calls the charitable assumption. The charitable assumption. Do you know who Will Gadara is? He uh, it was the, the former co-owner of 11 Madison Park in New York City. It was uh, rated as the best restaurant in the world just a few years ago. And he ran that place. And he says that uh, one of the defining reasons for that, the success of their restaurant was embodying this phrase, make the charitable assumption. He says when someone is being difficult, and especially in the service industry, um, it's human nature to just decide that they no longer deserve your best service, to write them off. But he says what made them stand out is that they took the approach to think, well, maybe this person is being dismissive or rude because their spouse just asked for a divorce or because a loved one is ill or they just got laid off from their job. Maybe this person actually needs more love, more hospitality, and more compassion than anybody else in the room. And that drove their service to anybody that walked into their restaurant. And I think that this is the philosophy that made them stand out. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that we do not live in a culture that often makes the charitable assumption. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite right now. We often assume the worst. We split people, we split people into good or bad, right or wrong, sinner or saint. And once we've split them, once we've identified them as toxic or problematic, we write them off, and it's hard for us to see them as anything other than that. It's doubleness. It's doubleness that keeps us from splitting people. It helps us accept that people are far more complicated than their actions often reveal. The philosopher, uh, British philosopher Roger Scruton once wrote that in order to learn how to love human beings, it's necessary to apply just a small dose of pessimism. 
This works tremendously well for toddlers, um, but it's for everybody else as well. Nobody's perfect. And once you can accept that, then you may, have a you may stand a chance of actually loving them, right? When my five-year-old is acting like a monster, right? I don't think he's a monster. I think to myself, he's hungry or he's tired, right? Or he needs some attention. Doubleness gets you to that place. That is the power of doubleness. And the more comfortable that we are with our own doubleness, the more easily we will make the charitable assumption with other people. Just think, uh, just think in your own relationships, in your own life, what difference a charitable assumption might make this week with your spouse, with your coworkers, with that one neighbor, right? That's the power of doubleness. Again, it doesn't excuse anything, but the energy we save from trying to wrap our minds around why people behave the way they do, we can actually, I think, extend to forgiving them uh, and maybe even trying to love them. Say one more thing and then I'm finished. Paul's insight, I think, should keep us sober. It should keep us humble about our own spiritual progress. And I think this is a good reminder while we make this Lenten journey. It tells us that everything we fear actually is true. We are not always the people that we want to be. Everything we have done wrong, we really have done wrong. The things we want to do, we often fail to do. And even as we are redeemed saints, we are still sinners. And yet, and yet, the good news is that Christ died for none other than sinners. And so like Paul, all that is left to do is say, thanks be to God. Amen.